0: The Athletic.
1: Hello, I'm Dan Bardell and welcome to 1874, The Athletic's podcast all about Aston Villa Football Club. Things are getting very sticky for the Villa, and whilst we've always been of the view that Dean Smith is doing a good job, there does come a point where results are so bad that any manager's position is probably going to come under review, and four defeats in a row, no manager's really safe when that kind of thing is going on. Greg, what's your understanding of the security or otherwise of Dean Smith as Villa manager? Because, you know, Villa won a couple in a row, we're looking good. And then these four defeats in a row has kind of come from from nowhere a little bit. But the natives, in some respect, are getting a little bit restless.
2: Yeah, so it's my understanding that Dean Smith is under big pressure now. Look, Villa have lost four on the bounce. They've never lost five in a row under Dean Smith. So um, if they go to Southampton on Friday and lose... Then the, you know the owners are likely to enter into a review period to consider the managerial position. What that will mean for Dean Smith, um, we'll have to wait and see. But there aren't many managers in this division other than Guardiola, Klopp, and probably Sean Dyche, um, who can go five games losing um, without that getting noticed. So yeah, a big game for Villa. They need a performance as well. it have been so abject over,
1: over the last four games, G- going backwards really. It felt like the performances. Of- turn the corner a little bit because we got off to a bit of a, a stodgy start this season but it felt like the performances were starting to come but it's just so alarming that the big change and the big turnaround and what, what's going on at Villa Park
2: I, I mean I'm very surprised I can't believe how quickly it's turned to be honest uh, when you think back to what six weeks ago Villa were winning at Man United and everything sounded and, and felt so rosy then didn't it and you know, we were on the podcast after we were spoke, speaking so highly about what this season could bring. And I mean, the 352 was working so well back then, wasn't it now? And that's already been ditched. Um, and you know there was it was just it was just exciting times but a lot has gone wrong um yeah there have been a lot of mitigating circumstances also villa have had a lot of injuries um i've written a big piece today just detailing what's happened in those 6 weeks between the manchester united win and the you know the four defeats on in the road that have followed um so for any listeners who haven't read that yet go go and have a read um there's a lot more details in there but yeah we're at the point now aren't we dan where villa just need a win to turn things around otherwise smith is going to be under massive pressure
1: if you've not read greg's latest pieces then you can sign up to the athletic at the moment and get 33 off a new subscription to take advantage of the offer just head to villapod. the west ham game was the latest in a string of defeats greg i think you know, looking back at last week's podcast, I think we probably all expected Villa to lose, and I, I sat in my seat before the game, and I didn't hold out much hope because West Ham are a fantastic side, and that they showed it on the day, how good they are. As a standalone, I don't think it's that bad, but when, when it comes at the, at the end of you know, it's another defeat in a row that the pressure is on and. Even from the start, you know, the team selection, I felt there were some strange decisions from Dean Smith. I'm, I'm not sure that the dropping Tyro Mings had the had the impact or made the statement that he maybe thought it would.
2: A lot of his decisions are really coming under question and scrutiny now, aren't they, amongst the supporters? Um, I'm, I'm with you yeah I don't think that Ming I don't think that dropping Mings was the right thing um yeah his form hasn't been the best but maybe it was just a couple of games too early I just think that his form wasn't quite bad enough to warrant a a, a dropping down to the bench oh, sorry to interrupt you but I think if you're dropping Mings you, you'd literally be dropping anyone yeah you know I don't think conter has been on brilliant form uh, yeah I, but I think I think they were at that stage I think it must it must have felt like he was at that point after the first half performance at Arsenal, which was just so poor. Um, yeah, they got a reaction in the sen- in the second half, but it felt almost to me that like he was trying to stamp his authority down on this and saying, Well if if, if I drop Tyrone Mings, I can drop any of you and, and that's almost a warning. To, to, to the rest of the team that if you don't perform then you will get dropped it's a massive call look to, to drop your captain it's a huge huge call to, to a lesser extent it's happened down the road at Birmingham City they dropped Harley Dean and um you know who was their captain and that had a desired impact because they went on and won games for Villa they needed to go and whip beat West Ham and they needed to probably keep it, keep a clean sheet and have a very rock-solid defensive performance. But it was the complete opposite. And, you know, bizarrely, Mings ended up coming on in the end anyway because Kanza got sent off. So it, it just didn't have the impact that it wanted. And, and Mings would have been furious at that dropping as well. Yeah, I mean, you could say it was a
1: game-specific decision in that Hawes probably dealt with Antonio pretty well to an extent. I wouldn't say he was he was running the show up top at all, Antonio. And especially in the first half, I thought that Hawes countered him quite well. But it almost feels like dropping Mings to me. It's the kind of decision that will do more harm than good in the dressing room. Because, like you say, he won't be happy, and he's—he's he probably the biggest character
2: at the club, isn't he? He's certainly the biggest voice, yeah. Um, look, Villa have got a leadership group where there's four or five of them in there that make—you know—that that speak together and make big decisions. So you've got Tyrone Mings, uh, John McGinn, Ollie Watkins, Emi Martinez. Um, they're they're what's known as the leadership group at Villa. So if if, if there are issues internally, um, these guys will get together and, and discuss things and think of the best way forward, um, and then put that to the to the coaching team. You know their, their thoughts or feelings. It, it can go one or two ways, can't it? You can look at it and you can think if you're the players and you're thinking, you know, you know d- does he deserve to be dropped for starters? If some of the players think he does, then that will kick them. Up the arse a bit and make sure that you know they don't underperform in recent weeks because they could lose their spot. It's like John McGinn, for example. I, again, not a, not another one that I would drop because I think he's very important. But he'll probably be looking at it now, thinking, "Well, my place could be under threat if I don't if I don't perform." Um, and the last couple of weeks, he hasn't he hasn't been great, has he? There's only one player who I
1: would say is performing anywhere near it at the moment across the whole squad, and that's Matty Cash.
2: Is the only one? I totally agree. And it's a, it's a similar situation to Man United in some ways, isn't it? Up up until um, you know the last week, if, if you look through the Man United team, you know almost every player is underperforming at the moment, um, and that's how it feels like for Villa. Yeah, Matt Cash was having a, a good game, and and his energy and his enthusiasm was was almost sparking a reaction from the others. But there's no there's not one player in that there's not one other player in that Villa team that's in good form at the moment, is there?
1: No, and it's a terrible start again. I mean, when you're on, on a bad run, you want to keep it tight. First 10, 15 minutes, seven minutes, Villa are one down. So they've done the complete opposite of that. And it's just too passive, letting a right back cut in on his left foot and bend one in the corner. You know, there's, there's no, no one willing to engage him. Everyone's kind of just standing there. And again, I can hark back to Mings. It's the kind of thing that Mings usually blocks and, and and cuts out. That that's his game, but just so passive from Villa at the, the start in general, anyway. And there was just this this air of resignation. Certainly in the, in the whole end where, where I sit, it was just it was kind of just expected to go one down. It's never good when you sat there thinking that. No,
2: I watched the first couple of minutes. I thought Villa actually played well. I thought they were really they were pressing um, West Ham in in high areas and intensely. But then minutes, probably two to six, and I think they scored after six minutes, didn't they? It was a drop off, and they could—they hardly got the ball. West Ham were dominating possession, and I was saying to the people around me in the press box, I was saying Villa have already strung a pass together here. You know, they're after a reaction, and they're letting West Ham dominate them in these opening periods at home. And then if you look at the first goal, for example, I mean, you've got Leon Baylor who attempts to, doesn't even attempt to block the shot really. He's offered Matt Target, absolutely no support for the the entire game. So he's been exposed for most of the game. Fans are then turning on Matt Target saying he's underperforming this season. But what you've got to remember is that he's had a £100 million player in front of him for the last couple of years. So he's clearly going to struggle without Jack Grealish in front of him. He needs more support from it. Um, and then you've got Ben Johnson's shot that was just not even... There was no attempted block from, from Bailey, no backup from the centre defenders. And Martinez probably should have done better. So I think... I don't know. It was a good finish, but it was just a poor start and I think Dean Smith addressed it, didn't he? We are going to hear from him. Yeah, let's, let's play that audio clip in now.
0: Yeah, no, it was strange. I mean, we, we didn't start particularly well, um, poor goal to concede. I thought our response to that was okay. You know, first 15 minutes, didn't think we played with enough verve that we needed. Uh, but after that, I thought we built our way into the game and, um, you know, scored a really good goal, well-worked goal. John McGinn's played a lovely reverse ball for Emmy Brendier into the areas we want him to get, get on the ball in the pitch and he's you know, got an assist for Ollie's goal and we got down there the other side again and I think Ashley, Ashley Young pulls it back and I think Rice just gets ahead of John McGinn or it could have been us leading and then you know, second goals again, I don't think Deck hits it as well as he, mm-hmm. he wants it he kind of bobbles into the bottom corner and gone through a few bodies so Emmy you know, will probably look and think he could have done a little bit better with that one yeah I thought the sending off galvanised us, um, we felt wronged and looking back at the decision it was wrong, um, you know it's certainly not a dog zone, though, the ball's going away from goal, um, you know I could have probably understood it if he, if he sent Courtney Hawes off but he didn't. Uh, but then the third goal pretty much knocks the stuffing out of us, we've had the chance with Ollie where he's, where he's hit the bar um, and I thought as I say the, you know, our response to going a man down was good um, and it showed the character that we've got but the third goal, We've only got eight, eight outfielders on the pitch because obviously there's been a melee, uh, Marvellous has been tackled or fouled and the lad gets a yellow card yet Marvellous have to go off the pitch and when they break he's allowed on the pitch and unfortunately he's, uh, he can't get back and, and, um, and recover it and uh, that obviously just kills the game then. Listen, these players aren't short of character, you know, we've, had some, we've had four results that we've been on the wrong side of now but there's certainly enough character and quality in that dressing room to turn our own.
1: Dean Smith there after the game but we'll come on to some of the stuff he spoke about Greg but one of his one of his early decisions again it it did baffle me I should say at this point I've, I've, I've criticized Dean Smith a couple of times I am I am very pro Dean Smith but I just felt like a lot of stuff was wrong on Sunday and one of those things was Jacob Ramsey went off injured so you're obviously losing a bit of energy and impetus in the midfield there Greg and he turns to Ashley Young who's my age Brings him on in central midfield. I mean, in his pom, I don't think Ashley Young has ever been a central midfielder. I get that he probably wanted some leadership on on the field, perhaps, as, as the chips were down at the time, already 1-0 behind. But you would have been better served getting a, a Chuck Mecca on. And from a Chuck Mecca point of view, now if he's not getting a game when we've got all those injuries and, and players are coming off the pitch injured and you see, you're seeing 36-year-old Ashley Young come on instead of you when it's not his position, it's pretty
2: demoralising. I just think that that sub was wrong, sent out the wrong message in a number of ways. Yeah, there aren't many Premier League footballers that are older than me now either, so uh, it's getting a bit depressing, isn't it? But but yeah, look, at the time I thought it was the wrong move. The more I've thought about it and the more I've analysed it and I've written about it in depth today, the more I can half understand, (laughs) only half understand why why Dean Smith uh, did that. I think... If, if we if if we address Chuck Memecki first, um, he's an 18-year-old, raw but very exciting talent. Um, do you trust him to come on in a game where Villa are massively under the cosh? They're 1-0 down already. They're heading towards their fourth defeat. The fans are slightly turning on them. There's a lack of experience and know-how in that team already. It feels a little bit broken. There's no captain on the pitch in Mings. So John McGinn's running the show. Do you then throw on the 18-year-old and leave him open to it all and say, look, you've got to go and do it for us? Or do you risk it and have Ashley Young, who we know is a leader, um, he's played at the highest level at Man United, Inter Milan in England, and knows what it takes to win? And we both know that he's very vocal out there, isn't he? And he can bring a group together. So those are the options Dean Smith faces. Um it's a real tough one because Young's nev- Young's hardly ever played in central midfield, has it? We both he know. He played that. there against Brentford, he, didn't yeah, he, at the start of and, and the and season? He didn't, really, and he didn't look he good, did he? Um, you know, we, we it's know It's not his that fault, it's not his position. It's just a really tough one in the in the way things were. I think if Villa weren't on such a such a, a dismal run, then Chuckwamecker would have come on. Um if I go back to Chukwueke, he's no closer to signing a contract. In fact, he's, he, I understand they're not even talking about a new contract at the moment. And why would they? Because he's not he's not playing any minutes. Um, and Villa are in danger, really. Okay, I think he's got 17 or 18 months left on his deal. But Villa are in danger of losing this kid to a, a, you know a team that are willing to play him um, if he doesn't get the minutes that he needs. Um, and that he wants, and that he was promised, because when he signed his pro deal, he was promised minutes, and yeah, he's had a few in the Premier League, but he is not getting as many as he as, as he would have hoped, and to not get on when every single other midfielder is out. And there'll be better teams than Villa that will snap him up if he, if he if he doesn't sign that contract, and he'll and he'll get and he'll get minutes for those better teams. There will be teams that will play him. That's the thing. He'll have those options, you know, whether that's abroad um, or not. But there will be teams that will play him. Um, there's a long way to go so look Chukwemek has got you know I think he'll be 20 years old by the time his, his contract expires so there is still time for him um, at filler. but at the moment it, it's looking pretty bleak for him I'd say because if he can't get on when every midfielder's out when's he ever going to get a chance
1: yeah uh, that, that's a worrying situation for me I don't like that I don't like the stuff that I'm hearing from you there Greg quite often don't like some of the stuff I'm hearing from you, but in a different way this time. I don't like that at all. Villa did manage to equalise through Ollie Watkins, a rare piece of good work from Emi Buendia for that goal, Greg. Quite again, again, I don't think it's particularly his fault. Villa aren't playing well. He's new. He's had fitness problems, travel problems. You know, I, I get it. It was nice to see a bit of quality from him. Not, not the best finish from Watkins, but it's found its way into the net. And at that point... Villa Park's a, a little bit buoyed. There's a little bit of a, a, a turn in the atmosphere slightly. You feel like Villa might go on and, and do something good, but no. Five minutes later, they haven't learned the lesson from the first goal, and they just let Declan Rice shoot. Again, too passive, no one willing to engage. Not the best strike in the world, but it's found its way into the bottom corner. And from, from then on, you, you worry for Villa again. It's just it's letting in bad goals at bad times.
2: Just get to half-time, 1-1. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. It just seems that way at the moment, doesn't it? They've, they've lost that willingness to keep the ball out of the net. It's, it's disappointing. Um, I thought Watkins' goal was really lucky, to be honest. I mean, did you? It wasn't a great finish. Yeah. I mean, I thought, how the hell
1: has Fabianski let that in? I didn't mind it. Did, did you not my, think that as well? I, I think he should have saved it. I didn't mind it because I've persisted with Watkins in my fantasy football team for weeks. And <laughs> finally, my help, bravery was help. rewarded, but... I think it's what it, it, maybe it came through bodies for Fabianski. I, I thought it was a poor finish because it's, it's ended up going pretty yeah, much I think straight. So. Home, I think. But you don't care when it ends up in the net and
2: it's Villa, Greg. You know that. No, no, no. Look, look, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, I said to the guys around me, how the hell Fabianski let that in? I was I was just so surprised. Um But yeah, if, if, if we address the, the five or six minutes again after that, just so poor from Villa. They just allow West Ham to come at them. Uh, and... Oh, yeah, it was just such a terrible goal to concede, wasn't it? I mean, you expect my Emmy Martinez to do better. You made a couple of good saves in the game, to be fair to him, but you expect him to to save that with the high standards that he set. Um, And I feel like the the crowd had stuck by Villa up until that point. Um, And even when they went down to 10 men, I think there was a bit of a rallying cry, wasn't there? And Villa played some of their best football, actually, with 10 men. But as soon as the third and fourth goals went in, that was it. I've actually heard a few people say that it was quite toxic and poisonous at Villa Park on on Sunday. And,
1: you know, I've... I've sat through some poisonous and toxic atmospheres in the whole. Yeah. That wasn't one of them. It wasn't that bad, was
2: it? It no, was just that no. it was like I, I say, it was that
1: air of inevitability that Villa were gonna lose. That was more concerning to me.
2: Yeah, I think I think it was actually worse at Arsenal. I spoke to quite a few people who who went to the Arsenal game um and they said the reactions after the game was bordering on toxic because there were a lot of, you know, Smith, Smith's not doing this right, he's not doing that right, he should be doing this, he should be doing that. Um, a few arguments between the Smith-in and the Smith-out um, groups. It's just, when you lose games, these kind of things happen and it's it's very rare, you know, it has, it's, it's a long time since Villa have lost four games in a row, I think, isn't it, in the Premier League? 2012, I think. It's 2012. Yeah, is, it, is it might be two. yeah yeah 2017 was the last time in the league where that was under Steve Bruce but um yeah it's been a while in the Premier League and they're, they're just conceding so many goals you know they've conceded oh three or more goals in every game um for three games on a bounce now and and that's the first time they've done that since 2012 as well so just a bit of a worrying time at the moment. And it's an old cliche, but you know, if a win changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah, and if they do win on Friday, it's, we're, 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 we're talking completely different next week. But I'm, I'm worried for him again. Yeah, I mean, that Wolves collapse has a lot to answer for
1: at the moment because that seems to have completely killed things for Villa. I mean, I think we can probably both agree that Courtney Hawes probably should have seen a red for his forearm smash. Conte is the one who ends up going in the next phase, phase of players, as he, he brings down Bowen as the last man. Debatable red card, I would say. I can see why it was given as a red, but I think when the referee had already given a yellow and decided it, it wasn't a goal-scoring opportunity, you know, to then go back and look at the AR feels a little bit harsh and to, for it to be overturned to a red, but there probably should have been a red card in there somewhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought they were both red cards. To be honest, and they could have done that as well, couldn't they? They could have sent them yeah, both yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought they were both red cards. Um, Hors definitely red cards, You can't do that. And um, in real time, I thought Konsas was. The more I look at it, the more the ball's going slightly away from goal. There's so cover there as well. And there is that cover from Ashley Young, but um, yeah, I still think it's a red. I, th- I thought it was a red at the time, and I, I thought they were both going to go at the time. Villa did rally a little
1: bit, and probably. Did play some, some some of their nicer football at, the, at that point. Watkins ends up hitting the bar with a header. Good save from Fabianski this time after we've dug him out for the for the first goal. I think he did get fingertips to that Watkins header. And Vidal were still in the game. They were very much still in the game until the Fornaus tackle on, on Nakamba. I said this on another podcast that I do. It was like the perfect storm, that third goal. Because, you know, Fornaus has fouled Nakamba. Probably not as bad as I thought it was at the time in the ground. He just, he doesn't, the referee could have played advantage because Ghazi had the ball down the flank. I'm not saying we would have done anything with it, but you know, there might have been an attack on there. The referee doesn't play advantage, books four nails. Nakamba goes off the pitch. West Ham take the free kick, so Nakamba's off the pitch, not not in position. The free kick breaks down, West Ham clear, break. Nakamba's only just coming back on the pitch, he's one of the last men and, and can't catch Jared Bowen. So they break, target makes a foul. The referee this time does play the advantage, like, <laughs> yeah. which makes no sense to me at all because two minutes earlier he didn't do that. They go through, shot saved, and it's four nails, obviously, who pops it into the back of Following the net. Up. And it's just like when you're, down, when you're down and things are going wrong, that goal just summed it up perfectly for me because everything went wrong in that goal. Even from the referee not deciding that this time he would play advantage and it being four nails, he knocks it in the net.
2: Yeah, it felt at the time. It just felt bloody. hell, this is everything's co- conspiring against them at the moment. It just felt like one of those ones where when you when you're at the bottom and when you're really struggling, things just get piled on and piled on and get the compounded, and it makes it worse. And that that one certainly felt like it was because El Ghazi was was free. You know, Nakambra had won the ball, and El Ghazi was you know not in on goal, but he was he was in a good attacking position. And if he'd have let that play on. That goal wouldn't have that goal wouldn't have happened. No mm. chance. Oh, no. But look, West Ham had enough chances to make it five six. I thought so. I, I, that that result was always inevitable when Villa went down to ten men. I, I, I can look at it two ways. I can think four one's a little bit harsh purely because they went down to ten men. But West Ham had plenty of other opportunities, didn't they? In breaks to, to get more goals. Um, so. Yeah, they're a very good side, by the way. I love, I love watching them. Very good. Declan Rice is very, very a good sensational solid. player. And, and, you know, Jared Bowen
1: gets the fourth at the end and it's he's, and he's completely game over and it flattered them a little bit. But, yeah, I think, you know, we can't have too many complaints. But I think the Villa fans are quite understanding in the end. I think, in a way, being down to 10 men probably saved Dean Smith from a little bit of stick that he might have got in, in that game because, you know, the fans could understand why they lost because they'd had 10 men for the whole of the second
3: half.
1: Moving on then, we've spoke on this podcast before about how villa strike partnership is taking some time to gel. Obviously, Danny Ings was not available at the weekend. Greg probably knows more about that than me. But the pressure is building on the whole team now. But a little partnership of their own developing at The Athletic. Greg teamed up with Mark Carey, one of The Athletic's data specialists, to have a deeper look at that pairing last week, and they wrote an article on it. And we've got Mark joining us on the podcast now. Before we bring Mark in, Greg, do you want to just talk a little bit about your strike
2: partnership? <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for, for having Mark, um, one of our data experts, to, to turn to, during stories. So, um, you know, as most of the listeners and readers will know, we, we like to team up on a lot of our stories and, um, you know, work together. And I, I just think that brings the best out of the story and gives you, you know, gives our uh, subscribers the best insight. So Mark is is a data yeah, expert um, and provided me with a lot of help during uh, when I when I put together the the Danny Ings and, and Ollie Watkins piece. So yeah, uh, for those who haven't read it, um, we're going to go in a little bit into, into more detail now.
1: Mark, welcome. Your 1874 debut. A pleasure to have you on. What's it like working with Global Greg Evans? First,
4: I should ask you that first to begin with.
2: <laughs>
4: well, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, um, yeah. No, it's very good. Yeah, it was. It was a good piece to to do, and it is always one of those interesting ones, especially with this partnership, because to to look at it from a numbers perspective, it's almost the the lack of anything that's quite interesting in this in this instance. Like you know, if someone's Going for a purple patch, it's quite easy to to look into the data and see why that might be. But trying to kind of figure out what's going on or what's not going on here with with Ings and Watkins is a difficult one because as, as Greg alludes to in the piece, we there's not too much connection between them.
1: Yeah, my first bully point here is the story of the Watkins and Ings partnership. You've done well to get a story <laughs> out of
2: it because they're not like that exactly and not much has happened. I think the key there is just that it's not a story at the moment. We, you know, we're waiting for a story to evolve. So that's why we were trying to d- dig a little bit deeper into it and explain why it hasn't been working so well yet. Because they are going to have to get it to work. Yeah. If
1: those two are going to have to play together, there's no way that one of them is going to be on the bench every week.
4: The thing for me is I know that you know I've listened to previous episodes of yours and that you say about like the system and stuff. And I know that you're sort of saying about like Emmy Brandier as well. In, the, in recent games, he's played kind of more centrally. I know at the weekend, he was more on the right obviously Leon Bailey on the left in positions that they kind of should be in, Ollie Watkins down the middle. When it's been a kind of a 5-3-2, 3-5-2, three, three, whatever you want to call it, it feels a bit like that comedy sketch of like, I am playing the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order because it's just trying to get that balance of getting the right players in the right positions and and also allowing them to, to play consistently. So I looked into the numbers a little bit of just... Uh, how many times that Villa have had a, an unchanged starting eleven? And I know that obviously in the coming games are going to be suspension related or obviously injury injury related, but I think they've only had an unchanged starting eleven in the ten games, the first ten games, twice. And you compare that to to West Ham at the weekend, and that was their sixth unchanged side. So they're a very settled side playing against. As I say, circumstance comes into it, but it's almost one of those as well which will then. Obviously, influence the the relationship between Ings and Watkins of play the arguably play the same starting eleven for a few consecutive games and just let them kind of find their way into form because as you said before, other than potentially Matty Cash, there's no one who is kind of in form. So it's is there an argument to be made to say we'll allow them all to play themselves into form? at the same time and have a settled squad. I don't know if that's just me from the outside looking in thinking that might be a potentially a good idea. I think you've, you've hit the
1: nail on the head. There's been too much disruption. A lot of it they've, they've not been able to do anything about. But the, the kind of annoying thing is I think Villa have to play 4-4-2 to get all their players in the team. That's the best way to do it. But I also don't think they've got the central midfield players to play 4-4-2 and I think Dean Smith knows that. So that that's a problem. That's a massive problem.
4: Yeah, I think for me as well, it's getting the the yeah the right players around Ings and Watkins because if they are kind of left to their own devices as a pair, Emi Buendia, as I say, previously centrally when it was the three of them together. Okay, that's three of them. Emi Buendia is sort of ineffective at times, but you compare that to how potent Watkins was last season. He had Grealish, Barkley, Traore or El Ghazi, I think is it fair to say, like uh, on the other side around him. So we had potentially three attackers behind him, then targets sort of overlapping and, you know, getting in the channels and stuff. There's That's just simply just purely on number, just more people around each other from an attacking perspective. Whereas if it is just the two of them, maybe Buendia kind of reaching reaching in and around the box, okay, McGinn as well. Um, it, there's just fewer of, of them around. So no, if they can't connect with each other, can they also then connect with others around them? Maybe not. So I think it's just getting more attacking-minded players, if not attacking players, in and around them.
2: I think that's a really good point, yeah. Because I mean, look, I know the three-five-two has changed now, but you're effectively what what Mark's alluding to there is getting those players, uh, those attacking-minded players, closer to the strikers, Watkins and Ings. But you're effectively asking Matt Target to do what Jack Grealish did in the three-five-two, aren't you? And it's it's with all due respect to, to him, he's not going to be able to. No,
4: it's a difficult one. Yeah, I, yeah to, sorry, to kind of finish as well, I don't have the answer <laughs> because because I think you've got to kind of either bring someone out. I don't know who that would be. I think obviously Leon Bailey has been exciting in, in patches, hasn't he? I think Emi Wendy is more suited to the right-hand side. That was where he played for for Norwich, um, but that was in a 4-2-3-1 system. Um, but I looked at it as well, actually. It's, I thought it was quite interesting where... Ings has come from obviously Southampton in a 4 yes this is what I was going to a 4222 two, two, or a 442 have you want to look at it um Leon Bailey's come from Bayer Leverkusen typically playing in a 433 three system obviously Ollie Watkins last season playing more in a 4231 Emi Buendia playing more in a 4231 for Norwich it's it's just about maybe it's teething problems of them all kind of playing in a system that they've not all played in at the same time together I don't know how often you know they've all played you know how many minutes they've all played together for Villa as well these things do kind of take time it's something as well which might be just sort of yeah ride this this wave out unfortunately it's a bad one with four losses but is it just a case of getting everyone to figure out the system and just it taking a bit of time
1: I don't think those four have actually played together at any point during the season I could be completely wrong I don't think those four have been on the pitch together
2: yeah, I think I think, uh, I think Watkins, Buen, uh, sorry, Buendia, Ings, and Bailey have only played thirty-five minutes together. That was twelve minutes at Watford and twenty-five minutes in the second but half. Then Watkins at wasn't there, was he, at that, at that point, no. So it, that, it, all it, four you, of them that so the, hasn't happened. I don't think, think the only time they've played um, was Arsenal in the second half. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that. for for a, few, for a matter of you know, literally a matter of minutes, few
1: minutes. Yeah, that that would, that would have been right. I'm going to ask you, Mark. I don't know. You might not be able to answer this question. So, obviously, Danny Ings has come from playing a strike pairing at Southampton. So he, you know, he can, you know, he can do it. It's a bit because he'd usually play with Chai Adams. Let's say you know, Watkins and Chay Adams aren't a million million miles away from each. other. I think Watkins is the better striker, but the way the, the style applies is not a million miles away from each other. So it should be something that works.
4: It just should be. Yeah, yeah, true. And again, I don't have too many kind of numbers to to pin that against it. It might be one where Ings is more. Yeah, adept at working in a pairing, and it's not to to throw Watkins under the bus because he's been brilliant since he's arrived at Villa. But is it something where he's a little bit more wanting to to yeah run the channels himself? And are they, I guess, are they getting on top of each other a little bit? I I looked in terms of their the touch map of of Ings and Watkins, and they both seem to. I know that in Greg's piece it it was really good showing how they do sort of act as split strikers, but when they do get on the ball, both of them seem to kind of drift towards the left hand side now. Are they both getting in their way a little bit and trying to do the same thing and maybe make the same runs or try to just get on the ball to show that they are getting involved in the play? I don't know. I think, again, it comes back to something where it's just maybe time, time on the training ground. And you don't want to have too many teething problems while you're, you know, playing a Premier League game because... You know, you need you need the results. So, is it just more time on the on the training ground? I think I don't know, Greg. You'll know better than me. Is is it that Ings had an injury at the weekend? So again, he'll need to get back to fitness. But more time on the training ground, I think.
1: You you'll know more about this than me, Mark. Do you want them to be split strikers? Because you know you've, they've been playing with three central midfielders. Behind them, who aren't really renowned for getting in the box and and scoring goals, they've then had Wendell in a ten in a ten for the, I think the the last two games when they've played that formation. But he's better coming from the right and cutting in, Well, coming in, not cutting in but coming inside and getting into the into the hole from the right hand side. You don't really want them to be to be split strikers. You kind of want Danny, you want Danny Ings definitely to be in the box. You might want Watkins drifting to the left because that's his game, but you want Danny Ings to be central in the
4: box because that's where he does his damage. Yeah, and I. Know if you think of almost split strikers now as the newer term is that it's sort of inside forwards or kind of wingers so if you want kind of three across the the front you want the the split strikers almost you think of you know Sadio Mane and and Mo Salah coming from very wide to coming out out to in whereas maybe split strikers could be against the more traditional you know strike partnership potentially easier to mark if you've got a back four then is it just that the left and right centre back can just pick up either of them and they Either man mark them out the game, or just know who's your man. Unless there is a real kind of exchange and interchange between them, if there's not, then that third person who comes in. Because if you've got the front three, I suppose, if you've got the kind of a central number nine and then two players coming from wide, then there's more to think about. Then you, the, the the you know the centre backs for the for the opposition don't know who to pick up at any one time because they're just again outnumbered. But if you can have two centre backs looking after two strikers, then it is a bit easier to defend against. I think just for on that piece for those who haven't read it um
2: we, I interviewed stilllian Petrov to to ask him what he thought about villa's last best partnership last, last best strike partnership of of John Carew and, and gabby Bonahor. and and he said you know the two of them they clicked immediately because they had the same sort of chemistry they had the, they, they had the same um Personality, um, sorry, and, and they automatically got that chemistry between themselves. Um, but they worked tirelessly together on on what they needed to do as a pair. And okay, it was very different. They're, they're not going to be; they're a completely different strike partnership than, than Watkins and Ings. But they knew exactly how to get the better of defenses. John Carew would hold up the ball, occupy the two centre halves. Gabby would find the space in in behind with his and use his pace to devastating effect. It doesn't seem to me. At this point in time, that Watkins and Ings know what they're trying to help each other with and what they're trying to achieve by playing with each other. Yeah, of course, they want to get in the box and score goals uh, and set up each other if they can. It's simple as that. But um, it needs to be a little bit more nuanced and and find out how, um, you know, what is Watkins' strength, what is Danny Ings' strength, and how are they going to get the best out of each other by playing together.
1: I thought Danny Ings Villa might end up playing a bit more of a 4-2-3-1 and Danny Ings would be like a hybrid number 10 buzzing around Watkins that was what I thought Villa would. Do. I mean we haven't had the person how to play our whole our first 11 pretty much all season's so that might have come into it but even Dean Smith at the start of the season spoke about being kind of a
2: a 4-4-2 team and then we've just not seen it. I just uh, I, for me against for me against the teams that Villa have already played um, I, I know it's been really hard for them to do that because of injuries to Bailey. Um, you know, Ings has been out for for a game now, Watkins at the start. But for me, if you have Bailey on the left, Wendy on the right, Ings floating somewhere behind Watkins, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, the, the, the midfields who aren't, aren't strong enough, are they? Or aren't not strong enough, is that the right word? Aren't Outnumbered. disciplined enough yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just going to get outrunning in midfield. And you could
1: tail him again again then, as he's, he's got to stay deep.
2: That would say to me the Canberra um, has to play. Probably. Yeah, but I don't know, maybe against one of the lesser lights in the division, it might be easier, but if you're going to a Chelsea or a Man U or, or Tottenham even, you, I wouldn't fancy that. I think they'd get ripped apart. No, it's a difficult one. Mark, before we let you go,
1: simple question. Is a strike pairing just simply now an outdated tactic?
4: It's one of those, isn't it, where they just these sort of formations and systems go in cycles. I think I I think four three three or maybe a four two three one is is the order of the the day, or at least the the past few years. Um, it, It it completely depends on the system, the personnel as well. I think when you say about you know McGinn and Louise maybe being a bit overrun in the middle, if you've got someone who is an elite quality international, who you know the likes of. Fabinho or or Fernandinho able to just almost operate as a single defensive midfielder. I know I'm, I'm answering your question about strike partnerships with the midfielder, oh, no. but it, it it works back, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Because then you can you can allow the the strikers to to do that if you've got that protection in the midfield. So to sort of answer your question, I think for it, it's horses for courses, but I think this system just doesn't for the pair of them Ings and, and Watkins. It doesn't quite suit them, um, and, I, and I come back to it. I think whatever whatever Dean Smith goes with in terms of formation I think stick with it for, for a long period if you are going to go with them both go with them for a long period and get a system that works for them yeah
1: I think Buendia might be in trouble long term I'm not sure they. I think there's going to have to be a fall guy from all these big big players and I think it's probably going to be him but thanks ever so much for talking to us today Mark it's, it's been great talking to you actually I've really really enjoyed it I could, I could talk about systems and formations all day so it's been great for me and thanks for coming on
4: thanks for having me
3: Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
1: Let's finish then with a quick bit of news and the top three, Greg. So Matty Cash has been confirmed in the Poland squad, another international at Villa Park, another player that we'll keep our fingers crossed comes back safe and healthy from international duty. But great for him because he's been he's been probably Villa's best player so far this season.
2: Yeah, yeah, really pleased for him. Um, I think the international exposure will, will help him take his game onto another level as well. So that can only be a good thing for both him and Villa.
1: Crossing the ball for Levandoska, that must be nice. Yeah,
2: yeah it would be good to have uh, somebody who puts them all away regularly, wouldn't it? Yeah, maybe come <laughs> back with some tips for the,
1: for, for the rest of the lads <laughs> in putting the ball in the back of the net. That, that would be nice. Uh, Emin Martinez, very popular in Argentina, very popular at Villa Park, but not so popular in
2: Colombia, Greg. <laughs> yeah the uh, i think the columbia fans were starting to take the Mick out of him a little bit at the weekend um having conceded four goals if you if you remember the martinez was very very vocal in the Um, semi-final penalty shootout with with Colombia in the recent Copa America. So I think Colombia fans have have liked to follow his progress or lack of progress at times uh, this season. Um, Yeah, and and we're quick to mock him. There there are a couple of stories, I think, in the Colombian national paper just saying that, um, you know, fans had been mocking him and stuff. So I'm sure he won't be bothered. I'm sure he'll uh, recover very quickly and show how good he's a goalkeeper. We've got enough problems, Columbia. We don't need you jumping on us. The
1: whole is <laughs> jumping on our players. That's the last, the last thing we need at the moment. <laughs> Let's finish then with the top three, Greg. And this week it's the top three dodgy red card decisions. Now, I struggled to come up with some some stuff for this last night. Obviously, this has come off the back of the, the Concer and Hawes red card issues at the, the weekend. You're going to manipulate it a little bit, aren't you, I think, to help us along our way?
2: I think so. I think it's worth just looking back on some Villa games that um, have had you know, dodgy decisions that should or that should have been a red card. And I think everyone remembers one straight away, um, but also red cards that were um, given but shouldn't have been. So, yeah, look, it just widens it a little bit. I mean, I'll start off. I mean, I think the one that obviously you were at the game, Dan, and, and, and I remember covering it, but... It was the um, the League Cup final where, where Vidic should have been sent off, shouldn't he, early on? Joke. Yeah, that was, uh,
1: sleepless nights about that still. Because I could be sat, sitting here and saying, oh, Vidic haven't won a trophy for 11 years or 12 years, <laughs> whatever, whatever, it, whatever it was. But instead, I'm still sat here saying, Vidic haven't won a trophy since 1996. So I that makes a big difference. That, but that, it vid, does, it that Vidic look, one was a disgrace. And we had a good side then as well. It's a shame that side yeah. never won anything.
2: Yeah, and, and look, you... Milner obviously took away the penalty anyway but um, you'd, you'd fancy Villa then 1-0 up to, with 10 men wouldn't you Yeah. T- to go on and see
1: it out I've just thought of one that perhaps should have been a red card I don't know whether he can get a red card for this I don't know why this just popped into my head probably because I just said we haven't won anything since 1996 Savo Milosevic spitting at his own fans possibly should have got a red card for that <laughs> Looking back, <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't have helped. I think we were already getting battered
2: that day at Blackburn. Should you get a red card for spitting at your own fans? I think you probably should. Um, I think you. I think you should. Yeah. To be honest, um, I think. I mean, I should know, but I think. I think you should, shouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's an interesting one, oh, mate. I think if you look back to those, you know, the eighties and nineties, and obviously Savo is mid nineties, but if you look back to the eighties and nineties, I reckon there'd be so many more red cards than than the than the than there actually was. Yeah, VAR would have been a would have had a field day it would have been difficult
1: oh. to do var with vhs tapes and stuff it would have been really difficult to, to, <laughs> to do that back in the day but yeah i think you should probably be getting a red card for for spitting at your own fans i'm, I'm going to throw that in there just thought of that on the fly. sometimes when you're having a discussion about these things things pop in your head because i could think of two from the same season it was it was lambert's last season tim sherwood took over midway through Gabby got sent off against Manchester United, a little clash with, with Ashley Young. He got rescinded the next day. So he, there was just nothing, I don't know if you remember it, in a stupid Macron challenge. I don't
2: remember that. Gabby just of.
1: went in for a tackle with Ashley Young against Manchester United as a 1-1 draw. He got a got a red card. No one could understand why, if anything, Ashley Young probably should have got the red card for Manchester United at the, at, the, at the time. He got rescinded. That's one, one that sticks in my mind because I don't think Gabby had ever had a red card before.
2: Yeah, I can't, I can't remember that one. I know I know Jack Grealish was disappointed with his red card against Westbrook. That was the I mean, next one, that think, was the same season. Oh well, sorry, sorry to No blame. no no no. <laughs> um uh yeah was it, it was two yellows, wasn't it though? Yeah, I think he got one for diving. Yeah, one for diving went kinda of like Les, I think Lescott had gone flying in on on him, yeah. but he didn't actually connect with him. Um and I think Jack was kind of just like expecting to be um expecting to be fouled, but he got booked for that yeah i thought that was those were a little bit harsh can't remember what the first booking was for but i I know he was particularly frustrated at the decision um another one that brings another one in a another one that i I can remember was james chester in steve bruce's last game as well the cabbage game yeah I, i know jess chester was fuming at that as well he didn't feel that that was um that was a red card decision. I thought Philip went on and drew the game, and obviously missed the penalty from Glen Whelan late in the day. But you know, maybe it might have spared Steve Bruce another day.
1: I got it's not really a funny story. I got a story about that sending off actually because I was doing the I was doing the content day the next day for Luke Roper, so doing stuff with the players. So it was oh, the day a terrible
2: day to do. It was do a that. day after wow. that game. It
1: was the day Steve Bruce got the sack. I was there at like. 6am or something stupid you have to be there I think the players have to come in early to do the content day as well so they never they weren't very happy about, about that especially off the back of what had happened the night before missing the penalty we missed a penalty didn't we in stoppage yeah, time well, you know, so yeah, sh- yeah. should have won the game arguably in the end we'd had the red card so I was looking at the list of players that I was doing it with James Chester was on there. I was like, "Oh, he's going to be absolutely, he's going to be absolutely buzzing, isn't he, to to do this today? Pinging golf balls around, talking to me. He's going to absolutely be, be well up for that." And when he came over, he was in he was in a little bit of a mood, and I was thinking, "Oh God, this is going to be terrible." Because I love James Chester as well. Everyone knows how much I love James Chester. But he did he did warm up and he got into it. And he was a really nice guy and got through it. But you know, doing a content day after, after day after that, every time that these content days, I swear we've had a nightmare the day before. I think I've done two or three oh, every time me. every time it's come off the back yeah, of something.
2: Yeah. I, th- I think he felt, you know, look, I know I know that he thought that it wasn't a red. Yeah, card, he
1: did. I asked him, he definitely thought it wasn't a red card.
2: Yeah, but but he also felt a degree of responsibility because obviously the manager who um, you know, shown a lot of faith in him over the years... I think he played under Steve at Hall, didn't he as well? Yeah, he did. You know, some a manager who who shown a lot of faith in him and had lost his job on on the back of of that of that um failure to win. And look, I'm convinced Villa would have gone and won that game with 11 men because they managed to to draw it and nearly win it with 10. So, Yeah.
1: Yannick Balassie coming on, heady days in the Championship. <laughs> Before we go, Greg, let's finish with a quick word on our hopes for the Southampton match. I mean, we did hope that we might be talking about a win this week because Holly the Hex wasn't with us. She'll be back
2: next week, so I actually don't have any hope at all for Friday. <laughs> um, well, maybe the fact that she's missed this game might uh, give us yeah, a bit of Yeah, maybe that will help. <laughs> Look, I mean, we've we've lightened up a little bit the mood, haven't we? In in the last um, towards the end of this podcast, but it started in, in a very negative And sorry to finish it on a negative as well, but it's it's a big one for Villa, isn't it? Uh, you know, going back to the start, if they lose, it will be then five games in a row. And, and Dean Smith again is under massive pressure. So um, it feels to me that players are playing a little bit with fear at the moment. So I hope that they can just express themselves a little bit more, um, go out there, show what they're made of, because they're a good bunch. They're a good team. There's quality in that team that they can go and win the game against Southampton. Um, Southampton have shown that they've tightened up their defence a lot this year um, and, and, have, and have recorded quite a few clean sheets, which is impressive. And, and they're doing quite well, aren't they, considering it? I, I actually tipped them to be one of the teams that would really struggle. I didn't fancy them at all, especially after losing Danny Ings. But um, fair play to them. They've they've, they've they've recovered well and shown that they can go and get results.
1: Well, of course, they've won their last two games going into the Villa fixture. Excellent. That's just what you want. No, I, don't think I don't think they'd won, actually. And Now they've won their last, their last two games. So they're coming into the game on form. I will say I'm a little bit worried about Liveramento against Villa's left-hand side, if it's anything like it was on, on Sunday. Cause he, I don't know how much of Southampton you've seen, Greg, but Liveramento is a player. Oh my God, he's very
2: yeah, good. Uh, well, you know, just uh, I've had him in my dream team since day one. Have so, you? He's in uh, as well. Kind of already knew he was a player, Dan. You don't need to remind me, boy.
1: Actually, I looked at you know you are you in the Villa View League on fantasy football.
2: You're doing well. <laughs> I haven't managed to do it as closely as you, mate. But uh, yeah, you liar, don't lie. <sighs> Do you know why I'm doing well? Because I've only ever had one Villa player in there. <laughs> I've only, I've only had I Watkins bet you've had be more, for, no, you?
1: I've only had Watkins all season. <laughs> He's the only person. I got him in while he was cheap, while he was injured, thinking he'd, he'd still score double figures. He still will. He still will score double figures. I've got faith in him. Villa are going to turn it around, Greg. Villa are going to win on Friday. You heard it here first. I hope
2: you're right. No, they're, you're they're, right.
1: They're, no they're not going to lose five in a row. I should not have said that because that's going to be played on next week's podcast. They can't, surely. Because, we, you know, sometimes when you're watching the team, you think, oh, those, those lads don't care. They're, they're not playing for the manager. This, this, this is a good bunch of lads to sound like David O'Leary and Paul Lambert. You know, they they do care. There is something funny going on at the moment, though. I don't know what it is. I can I just get the vibe. There's something funny going on. But we'll see. God, I wish you could. Please don't even put this end bit in the podcast, producer, because there's all kinds of quotes you can pull from me and use in next week's podcast. So that, I can't even say podcast. I've gone to pieces. Okay, that's it for today. So thanks to Greg and thanks to Mark Carey for coming on and joining us as well. Absolutely brilliant from him. Okay, from Greg. Thanks to everyone out there for listening as well. Make sure you don't miss next week's show where we're hopefully going to have a very special guest. Until then, enjoy the week up the villa.
0: the Athletic.